So we're in Genesis chapter 20 here tonight, if you want to make your way over there. In chapter 20, we're, we're really moving along to, to kind of the culmination of where God's been leading Abraham and, and directing him and Sarah and, and the, the fulfillment of the promise now uh, for them. But yet there's still some things along the way that Abraham really needs to get worked out, that God's doing a work of, of refining in his life. And here in this chapter, in chapter 20, we're going to look at a few different things. We're going to look at Abraham's inconsistency, verses 1 to 2. We're going to see Abimelech's integrity. If you're taking notes, write these down. I hope you are. Uh, Abraham's inconsistency, Abimelech's integrity, God's irreversible calling, and then Abraham's insecurity, Sarah's innocence, and then God's intervention. We'll go through those again here. But first of all, looking at Abraham's inconsistency. It says in verse 1 and, and 2 of chapter 20, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. And now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So you'll recall that we're coming off that scene of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction there and Lot escaping with his two daughters and then the unfortunate uh, outcome that came at the end of chapter 19 with uh, Lot's daughters apparently thinking that there's nobody left on earth and so uh, they have children with, with Lot. So Abraham now has moved from this place of intercession over Sodom and Gomorrah and he's moved now into Gerar which is... Um, it's uh, in Philistine territory. Now, the story here in chapter 20 closely parallels what we have already seen in Abraham's life from chapter 12, verse 10 to 20. That account had Abraham traveling down to Egypt during a famine and then lying about who Sarah was, lest he be killed. Abraham's thinking, hey, Sarah. Listen, if they find out that you're my wife, they're going to take me out and want you for themselves. So let's just say you're my sister. And in this chapter, chapter 20 of Genesis, we're going to see the same account unfolding here. Now, it's 25 years later. And the sad thing is that Abraham is repeating the same kinds of mistakes or lapses of faith. And, and there's serious consequences that could have come had God not intervened here in this situation as he had previously in Egypt with Pharaoh, when he had had Pharaoh stop anything from happening. Now, it's interesting, in the previous account, Genesis 12, it was a famine that drove Abraham and Sarah down into Egypt. Yet in this account, there doesn't seem to be any underlying conditions that's necessitating him going into foreign territory as he heads to the south of Philistine territory and stays in Gerar. Gerar was the capital of this Philistine colony along the seacoast. And Abraham's not a known man there at this time. It's something Abraham should have known was an unwise thing to do from previous experiences. See how we as well need to be careful to avoid places or situations that are gonna be a cause of temptation or a potential cause to sin. Abraham's experienced this before. He should know, listen, if we go into enemy territory, if we go into, into a foreign place and they see you, that's gonna probably be problems for us 
And by us, I mean me. Abraham's thinking, this is not gonna go well for me. Obviously, it's not gonna go well for Sarah either, but he should have learned from his first mistake, and yet he continues to go into situations that are going to cause problems. Proverbs 22, verse three says, a prudent man foresees evil and he hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. A prudent man foresees evil and he hides himself. In other words, he avoids it. He doesn't wanna go there. And yet here's Abraham foreseeing potential harm, but he's like, let's just go and stick to this kind of little story we've got going that's worked for us here in the past, which actually did not work for us too well in the past. But Abraham, understandably, is not being very prudent here in this situation. Now, what I find interesting, in these two accounts, Genesis 12, going down to Egypt, lying to Pharaoh about Sarah, his wife, going into Gerar now, lying to Abimelech about Sarah being his wife. What I see that's very interesting with these two accounts is um, that God had had spoken to Abraham just previously to reveal how he was going to work through Abraham. See, in chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 12, we have the wonderful promise given to Abraham that I'm gonna make you a great nation. You're gonna have a, a, a child. In chapter 18, God appears to Abraham again in that Christophany, and he promised to return to Abraham and to Sarah, saying that they're gonna have a son that Sarah is going to have a child. So in chapter 12, a promise, you're gonna make you a great nation. Chapter 18, I'm gonna promise you a child. And yet right after those promises are given, Abraham goes into foreign territory and he has to lie to kind of protect himself and cover himself rather than simply trusting the Lord. See, if Abraham truly believed that promise of the Lord, he could go somewhere and go, Man, I've got nothing to fear because God says I'm gonna have a child. If somebody takes me out, that means that that promise of God is gonna be null and void. And God's promises do not come back null and void. Abraham, if he was truly believing and trusting God, he would have been confidently going to these places saying, I don't need to lie. I don't need to protect myself. I just need to trust the Lord. But we see these lapses of faith coming. Interestingly, right after these great promises of God are given, Abraham was a great man of faith, but he was also a man that was very prone to fear. Although Abraham has been walking with God, he's been growing in the Lord, he still has not reached that level of faith where he's assured that God will be with him and protect him. So he repeats the same sin he committed some 25 years earlier. He lies and deceives, thinking that that is gonna be his protection. That's gonna be his safety. Understand, fear will cause you to do things that are against the plan of God. Against the plan and the will of God. Fear will always cause you to act in a way that is contrary to God's ways. As Oswald Chambers wrote, he said, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of power and grace that was God's. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. See, every great man of God is still a man. Every great woman of God is still just a woman, all right? And we need to understand that our protection, 
our strength, our help comes not out of our own resources, but from God's power. F.B. Meyer said, the best of men are, are men at best. So for Abraham here, he's relying on himself. And he's thinking, I'm going to be all right here. I've got this down. I've, I, I've got this sorted out. I've got my strategy in place. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. How we need to continually be relying and dependent on the Lord and his strength and his provision, his protection, his power. There's none of that that's found in our own ability. It's only found in the Lord. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So these two counts here are, are, are to provide for us this assurance that even in our weakness, God's promises are gonna stand. How we need to, need to trust him rather than our own wisdom. So Abraham, they, they come into Gerar, and what does Abraham do? He basically hands over his wife Sarah, the very instrument that God was going to use to fulfill the promises that he's given Abraham the very one that God was going to deliver the Messiah through, the promise. And we're gonna see how God will protect and preserve his promise. Understand that God has gone through great lengths throughout history to provide salvation for you. Aren't you glad for that? As much as the enemy has tried to thwart God's plans, as much as the enemy has tried to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world, as much as men like Abraham have messed up and almost thwarted that, God's promises, especially revealing salvation, are coming through, and he's gone through great lengths to provide salvation for you. Well, moving into verse three here, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he, he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself, said he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and innocence in my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, Abimelech is a pagan king, okay? They're in Philistine territory here. And yet the contrast between him and Abraham is a sad one in the story. Because Abimelech is acting more righteous than what we've come to call righteous Abraham is acting right now. In fact, Abimelech claims to be innocent in this account. The word integrity is used here. It's the first time that this word integrity is, is mentioned in the Bible. And uh, it's interesting to look at kind of that uh, principle of first mention when we see things like this coming up, especially in the book of Genesis. Um, and that word integrity really implies, you know, walking in a complete and full way where, where nothing is missing, nothing is lacking. Job 21 verse 23 says, one dies in his full strength. That word full strength is the word integrity here that's used in Genesis chapter 20. One dies in his full strength and in his integrity, being holy at ease and secure. Proverbs 10, 9 says, he who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. Integrity is such an important thing in the eyes of the Lord. It's what causes us to be 
whole and, and, and complete and to walk in a way that's blameless and honorable before the Lord. After a Sunday message, the pastor of a church in London got on the trolley Monday morning to go back to his study downtown. He paid his fare and the trolley driver gave him too much change in return. The pastor sat down, kind of fumbled through the change, looked it over, counted it eight or 10 times. He realized he was given too much, but then began to rationalize. Wasn't it wonderful how God provides? He realized he was tight that week and it was just about the right amount here that needed to break even, or at least it could have provided him for a lunch at some point. He wrestled with himself all the way down that old trolley trail that led to his office. And finally, he came to the stop, he got up, just couldn't live with himself, walked up to the trolley driver and said, here, you gave me too much change. You made a mistake. The driver said, no, no, it was not a mistake. I was in your church last night when you spoke on integrity and I thought I'd put you to the test. That's integrity right there. How many times are we met with opportunities like that, perhaps where the Lord is saying, let's see how you handle that. In fact, I, I was, uh, just yesterday I, I, I got home and there was a letter sitting there at our door um, that was given to us by our neighbor. And she was giving it to us from another person. We opened that letter and uh, had a little note on there and uh, opened it up and there was a lot of money sitting in there. And my wife and I look at this going, wow, is this for the, like we weren't sure, is this for the, the church or is this for us? Is somebody trying to bless us or bless the church? And we're like, what do we do? We don't know. And so, I mean, you know, after we booked the vacation for Michelle and I, we decided <laughs> must be for, for no, uh, or that's for the church. We've, we kind of looked through some stuff and realized, okay, we're gonna, this is for the church here. But just, you know, test sometimes where it's like, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna be integral with that? Are you gonna, you know, seek to bless yourself or walk in an integral way? And so Abimelech, man, interestingly enough, this first time that we see this word integrity is coming from a, a pagan king, and he's a man that's walking integral. He's not done anything wrong in his eyes. And because of Abimelech's integrity, God said, I withheld you from sinning against me. See, interestingly, because of the king's desire to do what was right, there was protection there, and God did not allow him to, to sin in any way. I believe there's something important in that, that as we walk in integrity, there's protection there that God gives that keeps us from moving into places that we easily cross the line into sin. God says, yeah, because of the integrity of your heart, I have kept you from sinning against, and notice what God says, against me. Any sin that we do is ultimately against God. How we need to take that into mind. It's like what we see with Joseph when Potiphar's wife was trying to trap him. He says, how can I do this thing and sin against God? It wasn't a sin against her or a sin against Potiphar or even a sin against himself. Joseph says, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Every sin is ultimately against God, which should be enough to make us go, Lord, I do not want to do this against you. I do not want to hurt you in this. But yet when we walk in integrity, God provides that protection that keeps us from moving into places of sin all the more. So moving along here, we've, we've seen Abraham's inconsistency and Abimelech's integrity. Let's look at God's irreversible calling here in verse seven. It says, now therefore restore the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. 
But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, God calls Abimelech to return Abraham's wife to him. And by the way, Abimelech is most likely more just a name of a, or a title for a king, like Pharaoh was. It's not a proper name. It's kind of a title for king, and that's kind of what it means. It means father of the king. And so this is the name Abimelech here. Um, but what's really astounding in this verse here, verse 7, is not, you know, that God calls Abimelech to return Abraham's wife, but rather what God calls Abraham, calls him a prophet. Interesting. You'd think God would keep that on the download to not let others see the inadequacy of the people, perhaps, that God was trying to use as servants of him, or perhaps God could say, you know, listen, I'll let you off the hook, Abimelech, because I've got to deal with my former prophet, Abraham, here. That's not what God's doing. He's not done with Abraham yet. He calls him my prophet. See, there's a wonderful truth given to us here, as is written in Romans 11, verse 29, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine, Malachi 3, 6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. You see, God is faithful to keep his promises and to keep using those who have been called according to his purposes. Your, your failures and shortcomings are not instant disqualifications. They're opportunities to grow, to learn, and to receive God's grace to keep going forward in him and through him. See, God's mercy did not leave Abraham even though Abraham has not trusted the Lord as he ought to be doing. I find that such a, a blessing and a comfort. This is the first time that the word prophet is used in the Bible. It's interesting that it's tied to such a negative situation. Now, a prophet was not just a person that would go and foretell you know, future things, predictive kind of prophecy. Prophets were simply spokesmen of God. They were people that were in a special relationship with God, conveyed his words through divine inspiration to others. And as we'll see in this chapter, part of that calling was intercession as well. So the prophet was, and Abraham's being labeled as a prophet here. And though he's kind of blown it, Abraham is still called of God to be a spokesman and to carry out a special role for the Lord. Now listen, don't begin to think that doing wrong is gonna be all right now. Hey, it's all right, man, I can blow it and that's okay. God's gonna keep working through me and using me. Listen, don't, let's not take advantage of this. Let's not begin to use this irrevocable call of God as a license to sin now. In fact, if you're a believer and God has gifted you in an area, giving way to sin and living a life according to the flesh is gonna greatly hamper your productivity. Now, yeah, God can still work through you. If he can speak through a donkey, he can speak through any one of us, right? But you see, there's no longer going to be that joy that is accompanied with being used by God in service when we are walking more according to the flesh than we are the spirit. There's gonna be an unfruitfulness that's gonna leave us rather dry and empty. There's gonna be distance between you and the Father. Instead of rejoicing in what God is doing through you and around you, there'll be shame. I believe that's the way that Abraham was probably feeling when God 
had him pray for Abimelech. I'm sure this wasn't, as we'll see, a very comfortable time for Abraham. Though God calls him a prophet, this is not a joyous season of ministry for Abraham. Look at Abraham's insecurity here next, next in verse 8. It says, so Abraham rose early, or sorry, yeah, Abraham rose early in the morning. He called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. Abimelech said this. Did I say Abraham? I don't know. Abimelech rose early. And it says the men were very much afraid. Verse 9. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? Wow. Abimelech calls Abraham and he really gives it to Abraham in a way where Abimelech is seen as the man of uprightness rather than Abraham. I mean, things are out of whack here. Things are out of order. This should not have been the way that this was going down here. It's a sad day when the pagan people are rebuking the people of God. It's exactly what's happening in this chapter. And Abimelech even showed more concern for his own people than Abraham showed for his own wife. Notice how Abimelech, he says, what have you done to us? You brought on me and my kingdom. He says, he's, he's thinking about all the people that are hurt as a result of this. I mean, Abimelech is putting Abraham in his place, no doubt. And he concludes saying, what did you have in view? It's kind of like someone asking you, when you know that you've fully blown it, what were you thinking? Anybody ever said that to you? When you know, like you are just guilty, you just messed up royally. And somebody says, what were you thinking? And you're like, you're kind of like, well, I, you know, um, yeah, I, you, you want to kind of say something, but you know, like, you know, you messed up. And you're like, I guess I just wasn't thinking. I don't know. Like you got nothing to say, right? You're, you're stuck. You know you've blown. You're kind of speechless, but <laughs> not Abraham here. No, he tries to explain himself out of this, right? And it only reveals his own lameness in this act. Look at verse 11, because here's what Abraham does. He says, well, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Here's Abraham's first mistake. Can you see it there? It's there in verse 11. Because I thought. <laughs> There's his first mistake. Because I thought. See, Abraham relied more on his own wisdom than he did on seeking the Lord. We don't hear of Abraham praying, consulting with the Lord. God, where do you want me to go? Or how do you want me to handle this? No, it's just, I thought. And here's the true irony of this statement, my friends. Abraham thought that there was no fear of God in that place. Yet, if Abraham had acted with a proper reverential fear of God and trust in his promises, Abraham would never have had to lie in the first place. That right there is the irony. I thought... There was no fear of God in this place, so I did this. 
And he did that because Abraham did not properly fear the Lord and believe in all that God had already said to him. This whole predicament is a result of a lack of fear of God in Gerar, but the lack of fear of God, or sorry, it's not the lack of fear of God in Gerar, it's the lack of fear of God in Abraham. That's the reason for this whole predicament. And Abraham's trying to find any excuse at all, but he simply needed to confess his shortcomings and own up to them and accept responsibility for his actions. Don't we like to do that? Don't we like to try to find the excuses or cast the blame on anything or anyone but ourselves? Well, I wouldn't have done that if, I wouldn't have done this if that person hadn't, uh, and we love to kind of shift the blame and, and give excuse for what we've done. But the quicker we confess and own up to our own sin and mistakes, the quicker we can be restored and renewed. That's exactly what the Lord is looking for for us and from us. That's why he, he came calling out to, to Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding. God's not struggling to find him. God's just drawing Adam in a confession. Why are you hiding? What's the matter? Drawing Adam in the place of confession to, to own up to what he's done. That reconciliation, restoration could be made. God desires a, a, a broken heart from us, a heart that is willing to confess and own up. A lighthearted admission of sin is not the same as a brokenhearted confession of sin. Sometimes we just want to kind of, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I sort of did this, and, you know, it really nobody, nobody got hurt by it. And sometimes we like to just sort of excuse things or have a lighthearted admission rather than a brokenhearted confession. And you see, it's like what Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart. How we need to be broken over sin. How we need to be quick to confess and not excuse or not run, but rather run to the Lord, own up to it. Because there we know that we find forgiveness and grace. It's there that we confess that we are restored back to fellowship and relationship with the Lord. That's what we desire. It's our sin that breaks that, keeps us away from it. How we need to return to the Lord, come to him with a broken heart and find forgiveness and restoration. No, sometimes we get comfortable in a sin and, and we begin to reason that it's not really a sin at all. It's like when we, you know, gossip about someone and try to say, well, we're just sharing it as a prayer request, just so you can, you know, pray for that person, right? And we want to just spill all the beans and, and just gossip. We feel good about it. See, Abraham here, he has a, a modicum of truth in his statement that Sarah was his sister. And they were, they were, they were half siblings. But the ultimate truth was that they were much more that this was his wife. See, he disguised this half-truth in a deceptive way, and a half-truth is a whole lie, and Abraham is guilty of falsehood and lying here. Even though he could have reasoned, oh, no, 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 listen, it is, it is true. 
But again, he's carrying this out in a way that's deceptive. And this sin had become an acceptable thing in their lives. Notice what it, it said there in verse, um, in verse 13. It says, in every place, wherever we go, save me, he is my brother. I mean, this is a plan that they've rigged up. This is something that they seem to have gotten very comfortable in and maybe a little desensitized to it. It's almost like Abraham programmed himself that this was going to be his tactic in dealing with these things. And in so doing, he became desensitized to the reality of this truly being a sin. And contrary to God's will. There are, are many things that we can get very comfortable with in our own lives. And begin to excuse it away as not really being a big deal. Maybe it's anger that you know, in how you react to adversity. And it just becomes an acceptable thing. You're like, well, you know, it's just a little problem I have. It just, it's just when things really irritate me. And you're like, you know, irritated 24-7. But, you know, it's like we excuse things away. For others, it may be turning to inferior things in the world to find comfort in rather than in the Lord. And there's things that we can easily excuse away and, and begin to find acceptance in as though it's really... Maybe no big deal. And we can have these things that become reoccurring sin in our lives because we've made allowance for them under certain circumstances. It's like we programmed ourselves to respond that way, but we need to program ourselves to be obedient to God and follow Him above all because it will always be a much more peaceable outcome when we choose God's ways over our own reasoning and acceptance of things that are contrary to God. Well, number five here, we look at Sarah's innocence. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus, she was rebuked. Although Abimelech was not in the wrong here, he still seeks to bless Abraham. It's almost like he's heaping coals of fire, right, on his head, doing, doing good to his enemies, as we read in Romans 12, 20, right? I mean, he's going above and, and beyond. But what's interesting is that Abraham had previously refused gifts from a pagan king. Remember the king of Sodom came to offer gifts to Abraham, and he said no. I don't want anything lest it take away from really the, the glory and the focus being on God. But now Abraham is accepting gifts from a pagan king. Why is that? Well, it would seem that Abraham is no longer in a position where he can claim this moral high ground. He's been compromised. He's going to have to leave Gerar learning. It's better to fear God and accept the outcome rather than not fear God and try to control the outcome. He's not in a place where he's able to say, no, I am going to live for the glory of God. He's been compromised right now. Not in the place of this moral high ground. And in the parting words of Abimelech, there's like kind of another slight or another slam that's kind of coming their way. Because notice what he says to Sarah. He says, and to your brother, uh, Right there in verse um, 16, then he said to Sarah, behold, I've given your brother a thousand people. I mean, this is kind of like just, uh, 
man, a little parting shot, right? You want to be your brother? Okay, okay, because he's certainly not acting like your husband, is he? We'll just, we'll just keep calling him your brother until things kind of get back in a place there. But now Abimelech says, all this shall vindicate you. And that word in the Hebrew literally is translated, a covering of the eyes for you to all. A covering of the eyes for you to all. And it's not even really sure what is meant by that. It could imply that Abimelech is showing that the wrong done against Sarah has been righted now. That it's all been kind of covered. It could mean that Abraham was now to be a covering for her and keep her from danger, no longer exposing her to sin, but covering her as he ought. And that word vindication and the link to it of covering, I just, I, I just am so thankful. It reminds me of just the covering that we have in and through the blood of Jesus Christ. Though we were in the wrong, we've been brought in a place of, of vindication, been justified. We've been declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ who has graciously covered us with his righteousness. What a blessing we received in the Lord. So verse 17, God's intervention now. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So this account reveals a, a, a couple wonderful truths about God. First of all, that God is faithful. And secondly, that God is sovereign. See, though Abraham was unfaithful, what do we see with God? He's still being faithful with Abraham and Sarah. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God will always show himself faithful. And no matter what may be unraveling, God is sovereign. His plans come to fruition regardless of the opposition and interference of powerful people that are coming to coming to you know, impose or go against what God wants to do. God's will always prevails. He, he is in control. As God closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, guess what? He's gonna open them up again. And guess what? That would have been a great reminder and promise for Sarah, who's been barren all these years. And suddenly she's reminded, oh, just as you closed up their wombs and opened them up, Maybe you could do that for me too. And God's like, yeah, that's what I've been trying to tell you guys. And it's time. It's time to open that womb. Look at verse one of chapter 21. It says, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham and Sarah now, as we move into chapter 21, they've, they've been through a lot, haven't they? They've been through some ups and downs. It's been 25 years since the promise first went out to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God gave that call on his life and pronounced that promise for Abraham. 25 years, I wonder how we would do if God waited 25 years before he fulfilled a word that he promised to us. But you know, those are times where God isn't so much delaying, but rather refining. He's doing a work in us. You know what that's like when your children become very impatient with things? When they want something, they want it now. Patience is not something that they're born with at all. 
and something they need to learn and grow in, right? They don't understand the principle of waiting and being patient, but when they're throwing their tantrums because they want what they want, you, you as a parent, don't just give in to what they want. Why? Because you know that they're being stretched in waiting and learning. Patience is building character in them. As much as they might be in agony, you know that that stretching is doing an important work of building that right character in them. See, God has taught Abraham and Sarah some valuable lessons that have only served to strengthen their faith and build up character in them that they much they needed, even as we see from the previous chapter. They're gonna know now that when God calls into something, God will provide and make it happen. We'll see that in our next study. But we're gonna see them becoming more and more people of faith. It's interesting that impatience was one of Israel's besetting sins. But here, God, so faithfully, at the beginning of their identity as a nation, in calling Abraham and Sarah, and then giving them Isaac, at the beginning of this identity of their nation, God gives them a wonderful lesson that God will always uphold his word. And the people of Israel just need to trust him and be patient. Oh, it may take a while, but it doesn't mean that God has checked out or that God's promises are broken. It might take a while, but it means you simply need to grow in faith and keep trusting him because he is faithful and his promises will come to fruition Notice this fulfillment of his promises repeated three times in verses one and two. I love that. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. And at the end of verse two, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. God will always prove faithful to his word and his timing is always perfect. At just that set time. God had said back in chapter 17 that a year from now I'll visit you. And your wife, Sarah, will have a, a son. God had said it, and God's fulfilling it. God will always uphold his word. God may bring you through those stretches where you feel that he is just not going to come through for you. Maybe many of you have experienced that time and time again. Maybe some of you are going, yeah, Lord, I'm, I think I've learned the lesson. I don't need that test anymore. But listen, keep being patient. Keep trusting him. Because God oftentimes wants to work in a way where he brings you to the end of yourself so that all we have then is the Lord. Because it's there that it becomes so obvious that it is a work of the Lord and he gets all the glory for it. That's what's happening with Abraham and Sarah. God's bringing them to a place where it'll become so obvious that, man, this is so beyond them. It's gotta be of the Lord. Look at verse three. And Abraham called the name of his son, who was born him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I've borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, this is some exciting stuff here, right? Abraham and Sarah are just overcome with joy at what God has done. And they're laughing now. Remember previously when Sarah overheard, you know, the Lord speaking to Abraham that Sarah's gonna have a child. She laughed, but she laughed kind of in, in, 
in ridicule, like, come on, me? At this age, can I have a child? And now she's truly laughing with joy. And in fact, the name Isaac, his very name, as was instructed for them to name him Isaac, means laughter. It's a reminder of just the goodness and the joy that we have when we allow God to do his work in our lives. Now, throughout the book of Genesis, we're gonna see many types and shadows, people and events that point to something greater that is done in and through Jesus. And in our our next few chapters, we're gonna see that really unfolding. We're gonna uncover some really exciting stuff in our upcoming studies here. But right here, even in chapter 21, we see a wonderful type of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and how Isaac's birth parallels so closely with the birth of Jesus. It's a a, a wonderful picture of what's gonna be done in and through Jesus. Here's some similarities between Isaac's birth and Jesus' birth. First of all, both were promised sons. This is the fulfillment of a promise. Secondly, both births were announced, and both came a long while after that announcement. 25 years for Abraham and Isaac. The birth of Jesus was, was announced way back in Isaiah. Long time unfolded, but those came to fruition. Both births brought much joy. Number four, both were given meaningful names before the birth. The name Jesus was given before he was born. Isaac's name was announced before he was born. And we understand that both births were miraculous here. This is outside human means here. Both Jesus, who's born of a virgin, and Isaac, who's born to a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. That's going beyond human ability. These are miraculous births here. And so we see the wonderful parallel and similarities that really just Isaac becomes a, a picture, a type of Jesus Christ. Now, again, God brought Abraham and Sarah to the end of their ability but to the beginning of God's possibility because with God, all things are possible. Isn't that what God said to Mary? When Mary said, how can these things be? No, with God, all things are possible. See, they've learned now that the flesh profits nothing, but the spirit gives life. John 6, 63 reminds us of that. The flesh profits nothing, but the spirit gives life. And as we continue on, we begin to see now the struggle that's taking place even between the flesh and the spirit. Look at verse nine with me here of chapter 21. It says this, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Ishmael now is about 17 years old. Isaac, he's weaned. He's about three years old potentially at this time. And Ishmael, he's scoffing, he's mocking. Those of you with siblings know how easy this is, <laughs> uh, how easy this happens here among kids here. But interestingly, the word scoffing is the same word used as laughing in verse six. It's like, it's kind of a play on the, on the very name Isaac, which means laughter, but Ishmael is not laughing along with Sarah and Abraham in joy. He's He's kind of laughing in derision and in mocking. 
this pictures for us here the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Because Ishmael is a product of the flesh. Isaac, a product of the spirit. Ishmael is born first as we are, born first naturally of the flesh, but then we become born again in and through the spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a supernatural work that takes place and the flesh is always at war against the spirit. Paul uses this very story here in Galatians 4, verse 21 to 31, as an interesting parallel to show that the Jews were not just Jews or not just right with God because of their natural birth by Abraham. Because Abraham had two sons, one in the flesh, one in the spirit. The question more so that Paul is, is getting at in Galatians chapter four is not who's your father, but rather who's your mother? Who are you taking after? Hagar or Sarah? You're either gonna live after the flesh or you can live after the spirit. And there comes a time where we need to willfully cast away the things of the flesh because they cannot coexist. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 says that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. There comes a point where we have to go, man, I'm, I'm in Christ. And as much as the flesh keeps trying to rear its ugly head and as much as the flesh keeps trying to get the upper hand, I'm a child of Christ now. I'm born in the spirit. And I wanna walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And there's a struggle that's going on to this day that will continue on until we're with Jesus face to face when we put off the flesh. And corruption puts on incorruption. Mortality puts on immortality. Until that day, though, we continually live where we are dying to the flesh. Crucifying, as Romans 6 tells us, crucifying the flesh. Making no provision for it any longer. Sarah recognizes, man, everything that God's going to do is going to come through the Spirit. It's going to happen through Isaac. It's time to put away the flesh. It's time to put away Ishmael. But this is a distressing thing for Abraham. Sarah's got no connection to Ishmael, but Abraham, this is still flesh and blood. So notice here in verse 12, it says, but God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, putting it on her shoulder. He gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, Abraham follows the word of the Lord here. He gives her some bread and a skin of water. You think, Abraham, could he give a little bit more? I mean, you're a rich man. How can you just give me a little bit here? It doesn't seem like the right thing to do. But perhaps Abraham is showing now his confidence in the Lord. That when God says he's going to make a nation of Ishmael, that God means he's going to provide for him. He's going to protect him. That God is going to make him a nation. That nothing that can happen, nothing that, that Ishmael could walk into will endanger him because God's not done with him yet. It took Abraham a long time to learn that lesson for his own self. 
But now he's learned that lesson and he commits Ishmael and Hagar to the Lord and he lets them depart. Abraham is now seeing that they just need to trust the Lord and he will provide. Verse 15 goes on, and, and the water and the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. And she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of the Lord called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Verse 19, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Hagar and Ishmael, they, they move out and they find themselves quickly in some very adverse circumstances. They're out of water. They're out in the wilderness. Not a comfortable place. And, and Ishmael seems at the point of death and, and Hagar is just crying out. I don't want to see my child die. But notice here, it's there in these very adverse, dry, difficult circumstances that God reveals himself. It's often the way it's going to be in our lives. It's in our dry, desert experiences that God wants to make himself all the more known to us. Isn't that the way it was with, with John? Thrown to the island of Patmos, a dry, dreary place. And it's there he receives a great revelation from God. In those times where we find ourselves and don't call out against God, look to God. Cry out to God because it's there that he wants to reveal himself in an even greater, more fuller way. And as Hagar cries, God hears, just as Ishmael's name means God will hear, it's repeated twice in verse 17 to add the emphasis that God will meet them. God will hear and it adds that emphasis for us of the great privilege we have when we are in a difficult, dry time, call out to God. Because he hears and he desires to meet us where we are. Let those times when you're in a dry time not be times to question God, but to call out to God. Allow him to reveal himself to you. Allow him to speak to you. Allow him to lead you in those times because it is in those times that he wants to do that work in you. Well, verse 22 says, and, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Peshaw, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I've done to you, you will do to me into the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. This, this account, again, now ends with another meeting with Abimelech, interestingly enough. And it serves as a good bookend to where we began the study here tonight. Because it was at the first encounter with Abraham, where, uh, first encounter with Abimelech, where Abraham was disgraced. But it's at the second encounter that Abraham stands tall as a man of God. 
And Abimelech now understands that God is with Abraham in all that he does. Isn't that great? That's exactly what, what Abimelech says there in verse 22. Oh, we see that God is with you in all that you do. Abraham's standing tall as a man of God. And, and this is this testimony that Abraham lacked, the first encounter, but now this testimony is shining forth. And it's the same testimony that we should all strive for, for people to see that, man, who we are and all that we're doing, that God is with us. And that it's only through God that we're able to accomplish anything. I pray that we live and act in a way where people see God in us and upon us, that we carry out love and grace and and serve one another, where people can see that it's not I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me and that God is with us in all that we do. Now, Abimelech's desire is to come into a covenant of peace with Abraham, and that would then allow Abraham to even dwell safely in the land and to roam freely there. We also see Abraham as a man growing in stature and strength. Why? Because he's willing to call out a person of royalty now for an acquisition of property owned by Abraham. When Abraham at first was very timid and scared, now he's calling Abimelech out. Hey, we've got to deal with something first here before we enter this covenant because somebody's taken my well here. It's your people. Look at verse 25. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? Verse 30, and Abraham said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be, wi- that they may be my witness that I've dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus, they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Peshaw, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So here's this covenant being made, Abraham offering seven new lambs to basically say, you know, I'm going to show you that this is my well. I'm going to give this to you in return. Now, Beersheba means both well of the oath or well of the seven, represented by these seven ewe lambs that were given there. And it's named to commemorate that encounter where God has provided a witness of Abraham and he's brought peace between Abimelech and Abraham now. This place, this well, will provide that Great commemoration of that. And then Abraham plants a tamarisk tree and says he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That's the first time this particular name of God is used. It's Jehovah El Elom, meaning Jehovah is the eternal God. Abraham realized that though he had made a covenant with a temporal king, he was really the recipient of the covenant promises of an eternal king now. He granted Abimelech tentative possession of a portion of the promised land, but Jehovah's covenant promised his own seed, eternal possession of that land. So Abraham plants a tamarisk tree, an evergreen tree, kind of to commemorate again. Man, this is the place here of Jehovah El Olam. Jehovah is the eternal God. And Abraham is growing now in his faith and understanding 
of who God is and all that God has for Abraham. So I pray that we will also be those that continue to grow and learn of the Lord and understand him in greater ways and just continue to follow him obediently, not having lapses of faith like Abraham did, but continuing on to walk in faith and by faith. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come to you tonight here and as we look through these chapters and we glean from the life of Abraham and Sarah and even Abimelech here, got many, many good examples of things to follow, examples of things not to follow. Lord, I pray that you would just take your word here tonight and may it rest upon our hearts. And may you just continue to speak to us, Lord, through this word, applying, God, those things that, that we need to hear, applying those things in our lives that we need to perhaps deal with or make right with you or grow in. God, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters here tonight and encourage them and, and just draw them to you, Lord. Help us to be those that walk in faith and walk by faith, trusting you in all things, God, that we don't have to rely upon our own strategies and reasoning, that we don't have to rely upon our own wisdom, but rather that we would just trust you, knowing that, God, you're faithful, and you're good, and you're sovereign, you're in control. We don't need to doubt, we don't need to fear. We just simply need to believe. Because as we've seen here, chapter 21, you're the God of the impossible. You do great things, Lord, things that, that we can never conceive of in and of ourselves, things that go beyond our, our natural ability to show truly God's supernatural possibilities. So may we just continue to be strengthened in you, trusting you, Lord, with our lives. Lead us on now, we pray in your name. Amen.